Welcome to the Color Auntie Podcast. My name is Grace, joined by my co-host, Kozan. And we are so glad that you're here with us. We're just your northern girls trying to live our best life. We're here to help you through those dreadful morning commutes, or if you're just wanting to hear Quay out of things you may be experiencing, because both Quay and I have been there. We don't really know what we're doing in life, but we're hoping to figure it out with you along the way. <laughs> yeah. So listen, your podcast aunties love ya. Okay, so... I'm glad we got to lay down some groundwork because now we're going to get into the topic of our episode and I'm going to read to you what was released. So this was the media release on, on December 17th, the correctional investigator, Dr. Ian Zinger released new data that shows that the proportion of incarcerated indigenous women has continued to increase uh, and is nearly 50% of the federally sentenced women. So that means like across Canada. On January 21st, 2020, like a year ago, the Office of the Correctional Investigator reported that the proportion of Indigenous men and women in federal custody had reached a new historic high, surpassing 30% that it used to be. <clears throat> so it is continuing to climb. Um, and then there's like a little, there, there's like a little quote that he said, but I want to now go over to you, Nat, and say, what, what do you think about this statement and how, what are your reactions? Because initially my reactions were like, I'm pissed. <laughs> like, what? Yeah. What, it's on like the, the mic, so you know, what do you feel? Um, <laughs> well, um, I'm okay when uh, this it's I mean it's not entirely surprising knowing the historical facts uh, knowing the historical um, use of incarceration against indigenous people and like the socio um, historical context and um, with colonization and stuff it's not it's not that surprising for somebody who studies it. Is it is it shocking and should it be reduced? Yes, obviously. Um, the the so there's you know in, in Canadian in the Canadian system there is two two um, sentencing or there's two areas that you would be sentenced. So there's the federal, which oh this God. is what the correctional investigator does. So essentially, you're in federal prison when you're sentenced two years plus a day. Um, so that would most likely be for more of a violent crime or um, some assaults and so on, depending on the circumstances. Uh, but it's based on your sentence, not based on the, the offense. Okay. The provincial system is when you are sentenced for three or two years less a day um, as a sentence, or if you're being held on remand, which means that means you're awaiting a trial. Um, and then, or if you're serving intermittent sentencing sentences, which is, uh, for example, when they when people serve weekends, so those are all done within the provincial system. The provincial systems numbers um, are are just as drastic, um, but it's actually in some provinces it's as high as like eighty five percent. For instance, in the prairie, prairies wow. uh, in Saskatchewan, I think it's Saskatchewan and Alberta, the the number of indigenous men in prison is like 92%, I believe it's in and around there. Yeah. So that, but that, those are, that's for like waiting for trials or whatnot. And then, so once you're in a federally sentenced program where the federally federal system is that there's, 
you're there for a longer period of time. So there's available programming, there's, um, and then you're, there's also for women, especially, there's only certain institutes that, that exist. So we have a lot more men's prisons because the numbers for women are a lot lower. But the scary part is, is that with, even though women's numbers are a lot lower, the sheer representation of indigenous women within prisons, within mm-hmm. walls. So I think the, there's like only 300, um, uh, in, in some of the work that I've done is that we call them federally sentenced women to avoid the stigma um, and, sh- and shame that can come with being called a prisoner or an inmate. So we call them federally sentenced women. So I'll, I'm going to try and use that term. Um, but uh, so what what causes this or what has created this though? I mean, there as with any other social behavior, there is no clear one 1% or one definitive answer but like the big thing obviously is the colonization the ongoing colonization um the historical and political processes that um continue to place um indigenous women or indigenous um at a into a lower socioeconomic position um so a lot of we here in Canada we are not necessarily a very violent nation like our violent crime not that it doesn't happen but it is actually quite low um it what what people are being sentenced to is um our a lot of times with people commit crimes is because it's out of a need a need Mm -hmm. for food a need a need for shelter a need or a need to obtain those things um Mm -hmm. don't it we don't really have there are, it, there does exist, but people are not committing crimes out of evilness, um, especially the crimes that people are getting caught for, right? Um, and, or out of greed. Now, is there, obviously, yes, there's like the tr- drug trafficking and so on. There's there's other, or white collar crime is what they call it as well, that, that it's a lot more about greed, but the people who are incarcerated in our system is, is generally people attempting to survive. Um, and the, yeah. So I'll just kind of leave it there. We can, uh, yeah, okay. So I guess I'll just continue. There's three elements, <laughs> sorry. No, that's good. No, of the criminal justice system, right? So then when we have the over-representation, it keeps, um, it keeps um, compounding itself or compounding. Um, so we have policing, courts, and corrections. Okay. Now, with policing, um, we have now who's being arrested, um, who's being, and who's who are the ones being targeted by. I don't want to say targeted by, but the police by police. Who are who's mm-hmm. attention, right? So look, we we look at the arrest numbers, and then also is like where do police target their investigations or target their community-based policing? I was about to go like this, but I'll try not to be too. So where where they're not target they're not the police are not going to neighborhoods where, and doing patrols through neighborhoods where there's a high socioeconomic status, you know, right. money and so on. But also, what's correlated with that is race, right? We don't, mm-hmm. and then, so we have the number of who's being arrested and where where crimes are being committed or being caught being committed because there's there's a lot of crime that goes unreported. Um, not a property crime, not as much, but when we talk about violent crime or we talk about personal crime, 
So where you're being committed a crime against, um, we know sexual violence is extremely underreported, domestic violence, extremely underreported, even assaults, especially in it, looking at the circumstances within the, within how that crime or what that crime, that what happened within the crime. Like, let's say you were fighting over a drug debt and you got beaten up really bad. Are you going to go to the, think about the conditions. Why would you go to the police? Mm-hmm. You probably wouldn't say he stole my drugs. <laughs> yeah. So, so we, so there's a lot of factors. So reporting crime is one thing. Um, and then where t- police are targeting and focusing their attention is like, then we have the numbers of how, of, of where, why crime is being committed with socio related to socioeconomic and social factors. So poverty, um, lo- uh, low so- educational attainment, um, uh, what else? Uh, gender also plays a role. Uh, they say, although men, our men do commit more crimes. We are seeing an increase in women in crimes against women or crimes committed by women. Okay. Well, there's that element. And then those numbers. So then once you're arrested, right, you go up for, you're eligible for bail. Um, here in Canada, our bail system um, is not a, like a cash bail. It's very rare that we do give out cash bails. Oh. Um, so cash bail is when you actually have to put up the, the money. Um, while I was a victim service, I used to work at victim services. It was only one time I saw a cash bail and cash bail was done because the accused was um, a US resident. So they wanted to ensure that they returned. Generally what we have here is um, we have uh, released either on your own recognizance or uh, through uh, a surety. So a surety is somebody who can, who essentially is tasked with a, they're required to not not post the money, but they're required to say that, like, let's say you give a bail of fifteen hundred dollars, that they will they'll be responsible for the fifteen hundred, and that they are also responsible for your behavior on your conditions on bail. Oh, yeah. So now, come with the sureties, who who you have to go through a process to get approved as a surety. You can't just walk into a courtroom and say, yeah, I'll be a surety for this guy. So we look at the challenges involved with even obtaining bail. And then, so bail just releases you until your trial. Um, And then, or, and if, but if you don't have a surety, if you don't have somebody, so somebody who is involved criminal, is involved in the justice system can act as a surety to another person. So also people who are low income, um, it's very hard for them to act as a surety because they don't have the means to to act to contribute or to to make sure that the money would be paid if if you breach. So then we, let's talk about the breaching the conditions of bail. So there a lot of times now depending there there's they don't drink or don't um, and don't be don't be around people who are involved in the justice system. So you're really displacing people. This is all they know, right? And then you're telling them essentially you can't be anywhere where you're where you normally are or who you know, uh, just while on bail. So then there's like administrative uh, charges, which are like the breaches of bail or breaches of probation. Um, and then once you so trials are also so then the next step is a trial. Now in Canada, less than four percent of all of our cases go to trial. Most um, most end up in a plea deal. Now, the thing is here is that there's times, and I'm not accusing any Crown attorney of doing this per se, but they might overcharge or they might kind of, um, meaning that they might've added a few charges that would be harder to stick 
with um, the uh, with evidence, right? But there, there, it could be so they might over. So you might have like seven charges, but really they could. If you went through to trial, you can only charge. You can only convict on two. But as somebody who is not a lawyer who is, you know, involved in the justice system, or this is, might be your first time, you would not understand that, or you wouldn't know to say, to say like, hey, let's move forward, or let, or no, I want to try and take this to trial, because <clears throat> closely tied into this is access to a lawyer, access to representation. Mm -hmm. Our legal aid system here in Ontario is so overwhelmed, um, and it, it's not much different in many other provinces, but how but so their legal aid can only do so much and they do a great job on what they do. And I'm not, um, there's no way knocking legal aid, but it's just the cost of the cost of obtaining a, a lawyer versus legal aid and then to qualify for legal aid. But right now, uh, this is anecdotal that I see when I was at the courthouse is that there's that in between of people who can't afford a lawyer, but don't qualify for legal aid. Mm. And you, what you use then is duty counsel. So duty counsel is, is a lawyer who then um, is at the courthouse and they kind of like guide you for that session only for because there's different appearances through court systems. You have your first appearance, your second appearance and so on and so on. So that you actually don't have fair or you don't have um, capable legal representation because you have one person, different people doing it all the time. Right. You have legal aid who's overwhelmed. So um, from that point, then a lot of times you're encouraged to take the plea deal. Now, if you're potentially facing seven charges and 25 years in prison and they offer you six years in prison for lesser charges, I mean, we're going to take it, right? Especially okay. the other factors involved. And then we go to sentencing. So then going through the court system. So with sentencing, we so a number of years ago, the federal government introduced uh, the Gladu reports. Uh, which was based off of uh, a Supreme Court of Canada case, uh, Gladue, where um, Tannis Gladue, yeah, she was convicted of manslaughter. Uh, she can't, she, uh, in a, in a, I believe she was in an intoxicated state, she killed her partner. Um, they were fighting. And what, uh, and then what ended up happening is, but her, her parents were, uh, I think her dad, I might, I might not exactly, but there was residential school history. There's a his history of residential school attendance. Um, there's other socioeconomic, I think the 60s scoop as well. So all these historic, these yeah. factors of colonization, and then how do they play into, play into, into the situation, the current situation of her. So, um, they, they were not considered. And so now there's a section, now there's the well, there's the requirement to do these GLADU reports, which are pre-sentence reports, which are meant to look at the socio-historical um, position or socio-historical um, of the person. Mm. Residential schools, um, how 60 scoop. Um, child welfare system is huge also amongst the indigenous population who are incarcerated. Um, so how do the, and then how does that, these, these policies and legislation, how does that impact your growing up? And I mean, we do, we do know how and what's happened with um, residential schools and how that impact has become intergenerational, right? Um, so those, that's the, the goal of these pre-sentence reports. Unfortunately, they're not, there wasn't, 
but I think I read a study not that long ago saying that they're not being shown to be as effective as they would have hoped because the numbers are still going up like very without yeah. doing analysis but we just see the numbers still going up there's a number of issues with the pre-sentence reports being that or the gladue reports they call them is there's you need to be qualified to write a gladue report um then also is like the crown needs to be the crown and the judge also need to be understand these the historical the ongoing colonization which we see is a huge issue amongst uh the certain people certain elements in within the criminal justice system you know and the same kind of um not uh, not it refuting it but just the um the lack of knowledge of of the historical factors and so that also is translated then into uh the criminal justice system and so th there's challenges there uh with the gladi reports and then the pre-sentence yes yeah, so it's pre-sentencing then they get the sentence and um i think there is studies out there that say that you know indigenous offenders seem to get a higher sentence than non-indigenous same crimes well relatively yeah yeah so then then what the next element is corrections right so that is um there's actually uh so correctional if you're sentenced to the federal you go through the correctional services of canada they do a number of um, um assessments for your classification and for where you belong within the prisons because there's we have three classifications um low or yeah low medium and high and then we also have um the edmonton super jail which is uh like russell the, the army guy he's at russ i can't remember saying that he's in that so those would be like extreme violent offenders um and uh murderers would those be like above um like are they called penitentiaries is that no, they're all penitentiaries so but it's just oh, a matter okay. of so yeah we all of our federal institutes are well i think they're either called penitentiaries or institutes but the okay. penitent um but like there's kingston penitentiary well that's closed now but bath it's i think they maybe you're right no i they are called that because of the what they are, but there's like, it's the security classification, meaning like what is available programming wise and also the, the type of security of the Institute. Okay. So okay. Beaver Creek, for instance, that's up in Muskoka region, that is a minimum security Institute, which means that the, and it's the people live in uh, essentially what is like a dorm um, there is no high fencing around it on the outside. There is a fence, but it's just wood. With a, when I visited, it was. Um, there's a lot more freedom for movement within the institute. Then that's kind of like you, you're preparing to be released, whether it be on parole or your warrant expiry at that point. So warrant expiry is when all of your sentences is up, your sentence, and that the Correctional Service of Canada cannot keep you incarcerated at any point. Um, unless you're deemed a dangerous offender, which they don't do as that often, but they have done. Um, so, but yeah, that your warrant expiring means you're done. So then they don't have, and they can't, they also, once you're released on a warrant expiry, they don't have you in correct, they don't have keep tabs on you per se. So, so yeah. I wanted to ask you one thing, who was the person that you saw at Kingston Penn when you were a student again? Oh, um, I saw, I actually, okay. I didn't go to Kingston Penway. We did go to Kingston okay. to 
Tatur Bath Institute and the other one, uh, I saw Paul Bernardo when I was there. Crazy. Yeah, he was. Yeah, go ahead. I remember you told me that before I got into like all that and then all that and then after I was like oh my god I would have gotten the heebie-jeebies and didn't what did you say you were like did you see did you looked at his face or he saw yeah I saw yeah so because I, I I I when we do these field trips I so I've gone to two in Muskoka and I've gone to two in Kingston through Humber Mm-hmm. Uh, I stand right beside the tour guide like I am her best friend because I love to know everything and I'm like who's that what's that this this I'm so no I'm so and it was funny that I went on a tour in Arkansas of a prison of an institute and I did the exact same thing and people made fun of me but I don't care because <laughs> I learned so I Great. was with the tour guide which was a parole officer her name was Angie and I'm just like Angie's best friend I'm walking in the front with her and we went by this one. So this institute has long has long rows, um, and essentially that's where the prison the the cells are. There's um, cells uh, like eight or nine down each way, and they they're all locked. But then there's also like it's a range. That's what they call it. So at the end of the range, then there's more there's a more gates right here that are locked. And so we were down, and then they have in that prison. They had different uh, different ranges, so there's like A, B. I think there was up to D or E. So based on the security classification, based on certain factors, would be depending on where you placed. So a lot of uh, gang offenders, they mentioned this, were placed in that prison, were sentenced, and so when you're sentenced, it you get placed on well, A, your gender, two, your um, what you've done and what your crime is and then other security factors so like if there's gang for instance they they would not place if there was like competing gangs they wouldn't place them in the same necessary in the range they try and keep that separate because they want to maintain the peace inside the prison um so we were just walking by and he he wanted to use the phone and he was like hey angie and angie's like hi paul and then i'm like and then she looks at me she goes <laughs> and then I'm like pass the message to everybody behind me I'm like that was him that was him because when you get there when you look at the security boards and stuff like they have it all highlighted because he has uh, very specific security conditions like he can't be out with other people so he's locked up all the most of the time and then he only gets like I think like an hour I'm not sure 100 but he gets a little bit of time out of his prison to use a phone call or to go in the yard which is like a cement hallway um but it it, so it's in between buildings it's like an alley but that's fenced at the top too (laughs) so he has to go out like by himself like he can't be with anyone else do you think that like because he's been in prison for so long that he's proven himself that he can't like integrate with other people because you think that like by now they would have been like hey you know, maybe he's been good for this long in prison. It isn't with him. With him, he's literally, um, like, a psychopath or something, right? Like, he, he can't get rehabilitated, or can he? Uh, I, I think he was deemed a sociopath, I think. Uh, but uh, there, the thing is, is, like, the programming 
that's available in correctional service at CSC is not that it, it's not bad and I'm not, uh, but it depends on the type of offense and the, 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 uh, the motivation or the, the factors involved in why you committed that for somebody like him, he was, he's, he was, I think he was deemed the Scarborough rapist, or at least they suspect he is. Yeah. So that's like huge sexual violence, uh, like red flag and then the the homicides right the murders he committed um i don't know how well or if you could rehabilitate that like that would take quite a bit of um i'm not a, i'm not a psychologist but it would take it, it's that that would be very different and he's like the exception to the norm of what our prisoners are like so same with like um russell wilson no, no that's the best football player Anyways, there's a couple of people who uh, the the characteristics of their offense have made them like that it's likely that they won't get out of prison. Also, mm -hmm. is even though it shouldn't really play a factor, but it does is the um, the thought of him being released and what that would cause uh, for the public's trust in the system, right? Which is yeah. another. So that's also one of the factors of bail is like would it repute refute Russell Williams thank you yes that's his name <laughs> um would it refute the public's trust um I don't think Bernardo's ever going to get out even if mm -hmm. like and the thing is though like when we see that he's up for parole so that something that bothers me I mean I'm not for Paul Bernardo or any in any sort of way but the le our legal system is set up with checks with balances or checks in place that legally you're entitled to like go up for parole after a certain amount of time when you're in federal custody so when they there's this outrage that he's getting his parole well it's because that's just legislated in it's not necessarily because of anything he's done or his behavior or anything it is just it is a right that is being given as a federally incarcerated person mm -hmm. and the thing is is like I mean, you, you, it would be more of a, a mission or more of a task to try and remove the legislation because how does that impact? Again, he is the exception to the norm, right? So we want to ensure that there are these things in place to allow people to get out on parole, to allow um, early release. He's so just let him go up for parole. He's not going to get it, or he did not, or he refuses to um, go up for his parole. So I think people make a big deal out of. Like him going up for parole, that isn't 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 justified because he's not gonna get out. Like yeah, he, there's, yeah. you know what I mean. But it's just legislated in, so they have to do it. They have to do it, yeah. Yeah, and then we and we can't. We don't have a system where we make individual rules for individual people, right? Mm -hmm. So it's this, and the thing is, is those techniques and those tools, like parole and stuff, are good um, for. Uh, good for other for other federally sentenced people to then try and reintegrate into the community. So the the better on paper, they're very beneficial for people. Mm -hmm. uh, but it doesn't always work out so well because of certain conditions based on parole and um, other factors within the community. But it meaning that not necessarily that they reoffend or that they commit, uh, but uh, that they get administrative charges, which is like when you violate your parole, you, then you can get removed, uh, returned back to. Uh, uh, the institute. I see. So I know that was a bit off topic to get up talking about <laughs> but I know that when we like I I mentioned it, I was like I know someone who saw him and yeah. so it's pretty like interesting. <laughs> Talk about you. This, this high profile um, offender. Yeah. I, 
as we talk about corrections, um, I see that you're mentioning custody rating skill. Could you talk more about what that Sure, is? yeah. That's where I was getting to. So the security classification. So the custody rating scale is one of the actuarial instruments used by CSC to, uh, to determine which classification that you should be in, meaning which type of prison uh, or institute, sorry. So um, this is a risk assessment tool that is used among, I think there's four that are used once you're during your intake to then determine like your programming needs um, and then your institute and also like any other um, conflicting or any other factors that might be involved in your rehabilitation is what they would call it. Uh, right now, so there has been recently, uh, oh, sorry, the CRS is also used um, by the parole officers. And they, so they, this is used as an attempt to quantify a prisoner's misbehavior in prison and any kind of, and the likelihood that they'll pose a risk upon release uh, with their parole conditions. Um, so these scores have uh, obviously very far reaching consequences, especially um, when you're in on intake, because you, you get, you kind of move down a system to get released onto parole, right? So they would never release somebody who's in high security or maximum and out on parole. You have to move through the system. And what we're seeing, so this is one of the ways that indigenous women um, are being um, overclassified, okay. uh, meaning that they're, because of some historical, the historical factors, 60 scoop residential school and other, um, how closely tied victimization is tied to criminalization and the socioeconomic position that they've been situated in is that they're being given um, a higher security classification than needed. So this is a this is one of the problems, which then creates challenges with trying to yeah. eventually get removed, but also is like this limits your access to um, visitors, uh, access to family, access to letters, access to programming. Um, I know I read that in uh, July, no June, there was a there's a class action going through right now um, that they are there's a proposed class action lawsuit against CSC that's looking for an injunction on using these risk assessments tools because it, it's being argued that it's systematically biased against Indigenous people. Now, when all these tools, although these tools have gone through, they have gone through a very, uh, their empirical testing and quite, um, the processes to become a validated instrument. A lot of times when we need to look at the uh, the type of population or the, the population this was tested on or used with. So gender plays a factor, plays a role. Race plays a role because of, um, you know, where we, where we are situated in, in society, so based on our race and the impacts of it. What, and this might seem like a, I know I wanna take the thing of like, no question is too dumb, but what, what in this rating scale are they saying that indigenous women are more risky? They're just like growing up at the top. Yeah, so uh, the custody, what is it? The custody, the CRS, the custody rating scale. It's it's only twelve questions, multiple choice. Um, I can 
I, let me look into it. I don't really know exactly what's on it, um, but it, it would be questions about like your history. So if you have a history of like abuse, if you have a history, a drug use history, maybe. Uh, let's see. This one's old. They, but uh, so like, okay. Two years ago, the Globe did a, an investigation and found that these uh, finds the prison system is stacked against Black and Indigenous inmates. Uh, okay, let me just quickly go through it. Uh, okay. uh, so it looks like like up, upwards of 10,000 inmates are, could be represented in this class action suit. Yeah, so it's... It, uh, Okay, so the 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 way so they the CSR CSRs ask about like your your history, so your um, allergies. Here it says allergies, gang affiliations, childhood traumatic events, and any struggles you had. Oh. Um, and then so the the history of it and the way it goes through is you know it's like the past is going to be determining your yeah. future. So and when you but, look at the sorry, go ahead. When I think because I know this sounds stupid though, and I know like. I, I know nothing about it, um, but I'm like, why are we, why are we asking these questions about how likely they are to, not to reoffend, but I'm like, I know that's important, but also why does it impact more of the types of services you get when you're there? Because if you have history of violence, if you have these things that happened in your past, you need, this might be like so lofty of me to say, but I'm like, you need to literally heal. So when you're there, why aren't you given access to more instead of given less? Yeah, uh, that's a very good point. So even even but think of the nature of prison, right? It's all the the priority in prisons is security. It is not for people to heal. Although we talk about rehabilitation, it's uh, programming is is um is uh, programming is offered, but again, it depends on your classification your, and other programming and other factors, uh, oh, what's wow. available at your prison. Cause not every program is available at every institute. And didn't you uh, say, sorry, a, a shot off uh, tangent. Didn't you say that there was one place by like Etobicoke where they had things but nothing was ever- Oh, so the Toronto South. Yeah. That's, so, that's a that's a provincially run institute, so which okay. means they generally do not have programming, because those people the people in there are still awaiting trial. So most of the people oh. in that building are actually technically innocent; they haven't been convicted of a crime. Okay. Yeah. Um, they do. I went visited there before it opened, and they did say that they were putting in some like because of the high numbers of Indigenous people, they were doing some Indigenous stuff. But as far as I know, uh, not much has been been done. I don't know for sure though. It's been a while, uh, but also then you had COVID in the prison system, in the in the correctional system, we have a whole new dynamic of like access to programming because there wouldn't be any. People are being locked in their cells for a long time for the day, uh, because of COVID, right? COVID. Yeah. So. But um, we do. So a lot of these factors that are that that the historical factors that impact that is with indigenous women and indigenous men in prison. So it keeps them in prison longer. It's less likely for them to get parole. Um, and 
what do we do about that right like how mm. how do we address this or and then how how do we do this how do we reduce the numbers i don't know i'm i'm <laughs> i don't have the answer um okay. i think okay. no i wish i did i think there's a lot there because there so the three elements i was going through there's police corrections and courts there's different elements where we could utilize different different like community-based sentencing, community-based services um, instead of sentencing. We could also look at what are the root causes of crime, right? Yes. We, so where, what are we, what are, what are they? Uh, there's the socioeconomic status, low educational attainment, um, and uh, like neighborhood in your community also plays a role like there's these factors so like what we need to do is more address the social ills and then mm -hmm. then we will see a reduction in crime because you know what if you send somebody away for five years and you give them even if you give them some skills but they have a criminal record how do you get a job after that or the difficulty of getting a job how, then in turn how do you get housing how do you how do you sustain life how do you eat how do you take care of the kids that you have so all of those factors but they have a what are we doing to help to 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 surpass that i mean that you that it doesn't everything is moot if you if we don't have what's available on the outside if we can't do more for reintegration so when they when people can't find food or they can't get jobs of course they're going to steal you're hungry like why and why yeah. You know what I mean, but then because that's another offense that also adds to it, adds to the uh, to their change or adds to the their their record, which then in turn impacts their security classification and so on and so on. So it's this giant cycle. But even like the programs that we have right now for like for re reintegration, a lot of things when they're funded through the government or funded through um, third party programs is there are certain classes, certain things they have to meet or certain things they can and cannot do. So we have a very piecemeal um, system where like one, the John Howard Society can help you with this. Mm -hmm. The Elizabeth Fry Society can help you with this, but then they can't do this. Um, they and other other organizations, oh, we can help you with housing, but we can't do this because the way that we've set up funding, the way that we've set up the system. So it's a very broken thing. So yeah. how isn't the continuity that's needed? Um, there also isn't the resources. Uh, let's talk about housing. Housing is a huge issue. Affordable housing in this city doesn't exist. I think in anywhere, not in anywhere, but everywhere has a, has is having struggles right now. Because I even think about home, they're like in the Sioux, there's nowhere to rent. So yes. if you don't have enough money or was a collateral or like assets to put up to put it to buy a house, you're going to live with your parent or you're going to live somewhere because yeah. like getting, you could, if you could only have an, save enough to rent, put first and last, and that's a struggle, you're not going to be able to afford to buy a house. Yeah. yeah. So that's, so housing is a big issue. Yeah. So, and, but it, without stable housing, like what are you, without that stability it, it really it offsets everything else like how are you supposed to find a job or how can you maintain a job without a stable without a house how do you yeah. shower how do you change your clothes yeah. right and then and then and then it just it compounds each other itself um like to buy a house obviously somebody is leaving a custody because is not able to buy a house they no. you get paid if you if you work within the walls you do get paid but it's i think it's like a two dollars an hour or something like that 
So you come out and then what? But then you go back to your family, for instance. You're back in the same cycle of what you were that that brought you into prison and the fir- or into and justice involved in the first place, right? right? So there's a lot of a lot of factors, and for Indigenous women, um, a lot of a lot of the criminalization is involved with victimization. It's closely tied. It's a continuum. They call that the female or gendered pathways to crime. So the crime is committed um, in response to either a victimization or in, in, I would say, not partnership, but in uh, on a continuum. So uh, can you tell us what that means by victimization again? Sure. So victimization is like when you've been when harm has been perpetrated against you um, and the you whether it be you can, I mean, the harm is still there whether or not you report it as a crime. So that's the other, with victimology and victimization is that you can be victimized, but it not be a police reported crime. doesn't mean it's not illegal. It's just, you're choosing not to. So why don't, why aren't people commit uh, reporting crimes? Uh, Generally, because there's a lack of trust in policing. There's a lack of trust in the criminal justice system, especially when you look at uh, violent crime against women women in general and then you add in the indigeneity um mm-hmm. there's a there's a huge element of mistrust from the colonial systems that are in existence um that and they have been the perpetrators of violence in the past and continue to be at this time so there isn't that you just continue you just deal with your victimization internally right um and then that in turn can also then in turn can lead to um, other factors uh, or other criminal criminality, meaning uh, it, let's say you cope with by using um, drugs or alcohol or alcohol or drugs. So then you that is a crime, a criminal offense. Right. So that your victimization because you're because of the inability to obtain services or support for it, you respond and you cope through vic, through drug, through alcohol, drugs, then that involves you in criminality. And that's how you then you get tied into get into the justice involved system. Or what we see sometimes with human trafficking is sometimes the the young ladies, they or the pe- women, uh, they become involved in human trafficking um, through their partner, who they believe is their partner and as a boyfriend. And when you when you receive that support and that um, like uh, what do you call it? the the re, re, affirmations and like the the what you needed what you lacked in your in your earlier life like you didn't have direction you didn't have somebody who supported you now you have it you'll do whatever they ask or not and it and it's not it and then you just that becomes your norm right so then you become you start becoming involved and some of the women that I've worked with is that they didn't believe because of the psychological coercion psychological um uh, trauma that they've been through is they don't believe that they're worth anything to do anything other than so that then that plays a factor and, and for women especially we really internalize a lot of things so mm-hmm. once we're started to become victimized or we are treated less than we internalize that feelings and that is like the that manifests into certain behaviors that can so that's how women really get involved in the criminal justice system um, or for survival is a lot of it. So when we criminalize certain offenses like prostitution, which I don't like using that, but sex work, uh, right. we uh, or uh, they we we think about just the situations that people are in to then to try and survive, and that that's a lot of times where our crime is and how our crime is committed. 
I think I kind of went off on a rant there, but I was but trying no, to that it. explains a lot of things. And when that like helps to break down that statement that was released earlier, like it helps yeah. us to understand and it helps to further because um, we need to know about all these systematic barriers that are stopping and that are hindering yeah. us. Um, because like as you were going through with us, like with policing, oh, I just forgot correction. all that. Correction. Correct. And courts, like, if you look at all that stuff, like, we're hit every time. Yeah. So, of course, it's going to look, it's going to result, unfortunately, that we're going to have higher rates. Um, <clears throat> but I also wanted to say thank you for telling us about using the term federally sentenced women. Yeah. Because I, I think that that's a, a great new term to learn. Or not learn. Yeah, learn. Because I learned, I just learned about it from you. And thank you for sharing that. Because... I don't think, I think if we can reduce stigma, yeah, that like then we should. Yeah. Um, so there was a lot that we went over, and I'm really grateful that you were able to sit with us and break like break it down, take a look at it, take a like a deeper look um, at our our justice system here. Um, and thank you for lending your your knowledge your extensive knowledge, Dr. Nat. Um, <laughs> Thanks. Um, Natalie, really you appreciate have, you having you. You should have your own <laughs> podcast or something because you have like, I felt like I was in school. I was like, yeah, I'm I like <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and there was so much more I wanted to say and I had notes that I'm like thinking, okay, but it, it is, it is a very complex um, oh. process and it's a complex yeah. system. And it, it, it is not, there is no clear one answer to, to resolve it, but there's, and, and like what Quay was saying, the different elements, like every, every area, systemic barriers, right, that exist in each of the main parts, and then how does that compound, and then once you're released, there, there's a whole lot, and then we, I, 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 if we have, if we, next, maybe next time or another time, we could talk more about specific with Indigenous females, um, and even the way that as society we've they've been framed which I get is a lot about what my dissertation is about is like how we've positioned indigenous women to be lesser than although they're not but we we've, we've really framed that since since the settlers came over and colonizing the ongoing process and that was be and you know it stems from like the settlers not liking the uh not I wouldn't say not liking but the the their discomfort with the matriarchal or an equity yeah. position of indigenous women within society pre pre-settlers so mm -hmm. that and it started from there and it's just amplified and then this is also how more violence is biggest again against indigenous women um we talked about it a little like lightly when we talked about um our episode of halloween like what's problematic about pocahontas but we would love to have you back to talk more about it because that is what you can speak the facts about yeah yeah that's <laughs> a whole dissertation <laughs> yeah so we would love to have you back listeners don't worry aunt nat is coming back dr nat will return <laughs> more of a deep dive into um yeah about her dissertation um and i wanted to Thank you. Just thank you again for sharing your knowledge because it took you how many years to understand this basis of the criminal justice system in Canada? Well, I'm and smart, so like six now. <laughs> but 10 years, 10 years of school, 10 years of school to get 
Ten years of school that we we broke down into an hour. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so grateful to have you. And um, you're a first guest for the new year, I think. Oh, yay. That's exciting. Well, yeah. Thank you. And um, thanks for inviting me. I, I, I always see, I really appreciate your, uh, everything you're doing. And I, I really appreciate it and honored that you asked me to be a part of it. So. Oh, thank you. Well, Natalie, we're going to keep you on. I'm going to end the recording, but thank you to all our listeners for tuning in and we'll see you next week. So your podcast, Andy's know that life can be tough. And we want to end our episode with promoting the hope for wellness talk line, the hope for wellness Um, Helpline offers immediate help to all Indigenous people across Canada. It is available 24 hours a day, seven days a week to offer counseling and crisis intervention. Life can be tough and we've all been there. So call the toll-free helpline at 1-855-242-3310 or connect online to their chat at hopeforwellness.ca. And remember that your podcast aunties love you.